Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for first asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, that question kind of catapulted me onto a journey into the ancient faith into the roots of Christianity, the the roots of the Bible and the biblical canon and what tradition meant and how we worshipped and how all that worked out and changed and grew over the ages. And it was then in that study that I encountered the Catholic Church and for the first time began reading from actual Catholic sources about what Catholics actually believed. And it was then that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church, was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, this episode is exactly on mission, on that brand, indeed. I am joined, rejoined by Father Blake Britton to talk about what Vatican II really said, what the Second Vatican Council intended to do. This is, for me, a point of concern, a stumbling block, because I get so many emails and, and DMs and messages from listeners who are, who are looking into the Catholic faith and encounter this notion of Vatican II and, and hear about how it was filled with liturgical abuses and how it liberalized the church and how it was this terrible thing. And, and also on the, on the other side, how it didn't go far enough and, and these things are, are good and, and these, these wars ensue sometimes. And it breaks my heart because those who are looking into this incredible Catholic faith, well, they encounter these kinds of debates and divisions, and they're left with all kinds of questions. What Father Blake does here is really explain to us from the actual sources of Vatican II what Vatican II really said. And it's so fundamental to understand because this was a movement, as he tells us, of the Holy Spirit. This was God working in the church. And so we have to understand that at its core, what it said, what it was, and what it meant to do. And of course, where it was misunderstood and misinterpreted and misapplied, that's important to understand too, so we can move forward in the right direction, the direction that Vatican II intended us to go in, the direction that the Holy Spirit, working through the council, intended us to go in. This is a fantastic episode. Every question, every answer to every question, I feel like could be a separate topic or a whole podcast in itself, because Father Blake really is speaking from a place of deep wisdom and joy and cordiality, dare I say, and a love for the church and and a, and a heart for the church, from the heart of the church. It's a fantastic discussion. I really loved it. I think you will too. Of course, this conversation and all in this series, in this podcast, are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. If you like this work, if you support this ministry, if you want to know and, and hear more interviews like this, please consider supporting this show. As I say, this is not my full-time job. It's busy. It's becoming harder and harder, honestly, to find time to do this. And so your financial underpinning of this show makes it feasible, makes it possible, makes it really thing that I can keep on doing and, and we can keep on doing 
doing here and producing week after week. So thank you. That's at patreon.com slash cordial catholic to support the show. And there's all kinds of perks that, that I try and give back to those who support this mission, like a, a patron-only podcast and book draws every single month for fantastic free books that, that you can be a part of winning as well. Uh, to thank you for supporting the show. That's at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or a one-time donation at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Thank you, friends, in support of this show. And without any further ado, here's my fantastic conversation with Father Blake Britton on what Vatican II really said. It's fantastic. Please listen and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. If you are watching us on YouTube, hello, thank you. Please hit the bell and subscribe. Do all those things so you get notified of our new episodes. And if you're listening on podcast, well, hey, we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash the cordial Catholic to watch what you are listening to. But hey, thanks for being here. This is going to be a very fun episode. I am joined <laughs> Once again, after a long hiatus, uh, thankfully, again, I'm joined by Father Blake Britton. He's a parish priest and assistant vocations director for the, Dioc for the Diocese of Orlando. He's a contributor to the Word on Fire Institute's blog and their Evangelization and Culture Journal. He co-hosts the Baroshire Podcast with Brandon Vaught. He has a bachelor's degree in philosophy from St. John Vianney College and Seminary and a master's degree in divinity from St. Vincent de Paul Regional Seminary. He's contributed to two anthologies that appeared on EW2NTN, the Catholic Channel, and a number of radio programs and podcasts, including this one. He is a classically trained opera singer. I did yes. not know that, Father. <laughs> a pianist, yeah. organist, and is trained in classical Latin and biblical Greek. And for our purposes here today, he is the author of a fantastic new book that is flying off the shelves from Ave Maria Press, Reclaiming Vatican II, what it really said, what it means, and how it calls us to renew the church. I'll take a breath and welcome you back to the show, Father. <laughs> thank you for being here. Welcome back and hello. Thank you. Thank you. It is an absolute pleasure to return to the Cordial Catholic. <laughs> and uh, we had a blast last time that I was on the show. It's amazing because we were joking, you know, before recording that you're one of the first people to actually interview me on this topic of Reclaiming Vatican II and to see it come to fruition now uh, is just amazing. So you were quite prophetic <laughs> in recognizing this is an important theme for our own generation of Catholics. And, and I've been very touched and very humbled by what the Lord has been able to do with this text and, of course, the message itself, and uh, seeing that it is touching thousands of people's lives. So I'm just so grateful to people like you who are open to allowing this message to be shared and allowing uh, for the great hope of the Second Vatican Council to be shared with the world. So thank you for all that you do, and uh, I know we're going to have a great time, as usual. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got the elephant in the room out of the way to begin with, because this was you know, one of the first podcasts that really launched you into stardom and fame <laughs> as this best 
best-selling author, Father. So I'm, ca- yes. I mean, no, you know, I'm Canadian, so I, I won't take the credit for launching your career as a, as a prolific author. Yeah, just the royalties. Yeah, yeah I know. Just, <laughs> I, I know those, how Canadians but, work. It's okay. <laughs> I was looking, I was looking back in our archives, Father, and it was exactly, exactly 100 episodes ago when we first chatted about this, which I find fantastically interesting that it's that long ago like wow it's been a long time doing this thing but when we talked back then one of the reasons why i wanted to have you on the show is because in in this podcast and what i do here and and this thing geared towards a lot of non-catholics looking into the church these these new catholics vatican ii comes up over and over and over again and right what breaks my heart and i know this is the purpose behind your book too in a in large part is when people who are looking into the catholic church Google Catholic Church or or Mass or something on 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 Google or put it into YouTube. So often I'm getting these notes and, and emails and, and DMs from people who are looking into the church and go, look, all I'm finding is this thing on the Latin Mass and, and Vatican II being a, a, a fake council. And right. what what they're finding when they're trying to look into the Catholic Church is a lot of this stuff about Vatican II that we know is a lot of kind of fake news and bad information mm-hmm. and, and, and whatnot. But that's what's out there sometimes, and it's so prolific these days. So when you come along with a book like this, I, you know, when we talked last time, this was kind of just, just kind of simmering. I feel like, unfortunately, it's only grown um, right. during the time of the right. pandemic and things where people are, are locked down and, and tensions are bubbling in all parts of the world. I feel like it's only gotten a little bit worse. But it, it's high time. Thank you, first of all, for this book. Because it's such a good timing. And to have you back here talk about this once again, I think is so important because when people search for the Catholic Church or, or search Vatican II and have these questions and encounter these these things, I want them to find you and this and this mm-hmm. show and, th- and this episode as an antidote to a lot of the bad information that's out there. Right. Yeah, you, you really hit the nail on the head there. I'll be honest that I have been surprised at the reception of this book because there was a lacuna, there was sort of a void in the Catholic world with this kind of dialogue or discussion around the Second Vatican Council. So we have a lot of people, of course, who are supporters of the council who write academic commentaries and what have you. And on the other side, we have a lot of people who are critical of the Second Vatican Council, but very few persons who are able to comment and articulate the 50-year window uh, after the Second Vatican Council, what exactly took place to develop and why these tensions, why these factions have formed within the church. So when I originally was inspired to write this book and I was encouraged by Ave Maria Press as well as Word on Fire, uh, I was very taken aback by the reception of it in a positive light from both sides, from those who I label a paraconciliarist and those who are called traditionalist. So uh, these sort of two camps, I know we'll get further in the podcast why I avoid the terms liberal and conservative, the very unhealthy uh, non-ecclesial categories to use. But uh, for those who may not have a proper understanding of Vatican II on either side, I've been very touched and humbled by the reception of this text because they're saying, Father, we've never heard someone speak about Vatican II from this angle. So we've heard people applaud it um, and also to commentate on it academically in its origins. We've heard people criticize it and condemn it and say it's a fake counts or whatever it might be. But we've never heard someone just give a balanced focus on what developed in the past 50 years of Catholicism, what led to the factions currently in the church, and what we can do to reclaim the original intention of this ecumenical council of the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's fantastic. And he's done a great job with that. Uh, Thank you. Absolutely. And yeah. we do, we, we applaud your work. 
Yeah, thank you. Else. Thank okay. you. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. You know, I give all credit to the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay. So I want to begin kind of a very ground level here because I'm thinking about those non-Catholics who are, who are listening to the episode and go, what is Vatican yeah. II? What is going on here? The Catholic Church, in contrast to other Christian denominations, other Christian sects, our, our, our other brethren believe in Jesus and, and follow in the Bible, the, the Catholic Church uniquely holds this position, right, of the idea that the, the bishops are successors of the apostles appointed mm-hmm. by Christ to that role, and the bishops get together uh, and decide things, right? We call that right. a council. So how does Vatican II fit into that kind of notion uh, you know, kind yeah, of at, at the ground level? <laughs> So we know that there are two aspects of what we call the deposit of faith, meaning there are two fonts of divine revelation. Uh, coincidentally, Vatican II has a whole document dedicated to that called Dei Veribum on divine revelation. These two fonts of the deposit of faith are sacred tradition and sacred scripture. It's very important for those who are sola scriptura, scripture alone, to understand that the tradition of the church preceded the New Testament meaning the tradition, the sacramental life of the church preceded the actual writing down of the text of the New Testament. It's birthed, as von Balthasar will teach us in his commentaries on Scripture, the Scriptures are birthed out of the church's incarnate encounter through the sacramental life with Jesus Christ. He describes it so eloquently as the Scriptures being words about the Word. Words about the word. And of course, we know that the word of God is not the Bible. The word of God is Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, as it says in John chapter one. So the sacred scriptures are important insofar as they reflect the word made flesh. Now, the reason why I give that theological background is because that helps us understand the significance of the magisterium, the significance of councils. Councils are not just inventions of Catholicism, inventions of the Pope as a way to dictate and uh, sort of push their own personal ideologies or agendas. On the contrary, uh, ecumenical councils precede the articulation of sacred scripture in the New Testament context. We know from the Acts of the Apostles there was already an ecumenical council, which is called the Council of Jerusalem, which helped decide the relationship of Gentiles with the Catholic Church. And this continues throughout the Church's history because divine revelation is an organic, dynamic affair. It's not something that's stagnant or pertained to one aspect of history. Jesus Christ is not a historical figure in the sense of being something in the past, but he's a real figure. He's he's present. This is at the very heart of what makes Christianity unique, that Jesus Christ is not just a guru of the Middle East from 2,000 years ago, but on the contrary, he's a living Savior here now who is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity upon this earth, and we continue to deepen our understanding of the mystery of his love for us. Ecumenical councils, of which there's only been a little over 20, Vatican II is one of those, these are major councils, major gatherings of the magisterium, of the successors of the apostles, to deeper understand the mystery of divine revelation. Initially in the Catholic Church, you had the ecumenical councils addressing heresies or points of dogma. Again, the first Catholic council would be the one dictated in the Acts of the Apostles, which determined the role of Jews and Gentiles. But then going after that, as the church continued to expand and grow, you had deeper theological questions at stake, specifically as the a Christian world is emerging, if you will, with the Greek world, there's a lot of debate around the person of Jesus Christ, namely because the Greeks have a notion of divinity that is hyper-transcendent. And so them trying to comprehend a God who would become flesh and humiliate himself upon the cross is very difficult. 
That's why St. Paul will say that it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. To both of these major world religions, these major players in the ancient world, uh, the understanding of a God who would humble himself, be crucified, is quite dramatic and revolutionary. So there are several councils to deal with that, Ephesus, Nicaea, Chalcedon. But also going on throughout church history, there are other councils. The most recent before Vatican II that was very important was the Council of Trent, which was against the Protestant Reformation. So trying to uh, articulate and clarify the church's teaching in the light of Protestantism. And then that leading, of course, to Vatican II, which is the most significant event in Christianity of the 20th century, hands down, and one of the most significant events in the whole history of the Catholic Church. Unfortunately, nowadays, the councils typically bogged down by these political uh, discussions, these political debates around its implementation, around the liturgy, whatever it might be, at the cost of really understanding the theological wealth and depth of the council. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I think we need to reclaim Vatican II from these two extremes, uh, which are commonly called liberalism or conservatism, traditionalism, liberalism. We need to, to reclaim the real essence of Vatican II and to read these documents, to read the text, not what people tell us about them, to go back to the primary resource and understand the beauty. Vatican II is summoned, as all councils are, to address a particular concern for Christianity. And the concern of the Second Vatican Council was the fall of Christendom. The fact that we now live in a post-Christian world, we, uh, since the Protestant Reformation and then the increased secularization that followed in the, in the Enlightenment period, the world has become increasingly less a Christian environment. So now we have to reevaluate as a church, how do we spread the gospel in an increasingly atheistic and secularized culture? And that's one of the main reasons for the Second Vatican Council, as well as, of course, the church coming to a deeper understanding of herself through patristic and, um, and ancient archaeological texts that are discovered in the two centuries preceding the Second Vatican Council, which we can get to later on in the podcast as well. Um, and I collaborate on that a little bit more when we talk about the rest of our movement. But in general, that's the purpose of an ecumenical council. It is the body of Christ. It is the bride of Jesus contemplating the face of Christ over and over and over again. And in that contemplation, just like any man with the lover, with his bride, he learns more about her every day that he spends with her. And it's the same thing between the bride of Christ and the bridegroom, Jesus. The more they gaze at one another, the deeper they come to understand the mystery of their love, of their sacrificial nature. And this, of course, inspires councils. <laughs> I think that's just... <laughs> Fantastic, Father. That's so that's so well said. And I love that connection that you make. This for me as as a convert to Catholicism, and I think many converts listening to this this program could also resonate with this idea. The idea that the, the council we see happening in the book of Acts at Jerusalem, that's the same mm. kind of council we see happening at yes. Vatican II, right? That's remarkable. <laughs> I remember thinking about well, why do why do why does the church have these like very these political kind of meetings where they get together and decide things and, and vote? It seems very political versus versus the, the movement of the spirit. But then I thought, then I you know went a bit deeper in my understanding of, of the church and, and the Catholic faith, and and I go, wait a minute, yeah, this 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 happened in in Acts. Like this is the same kind of thing. It is not a political exercise. Right. It's a listening to the spirit, <laughs> as you say, contemplating the the face of Christ, right? And it's yes. it's deeply biblical. Like if you were to if you were to say to somebody, and, and this strikes me as really interesting, you know, how how should the church decide things? Well, you often you often have, you know, churches breaking away and, and pastors planting churches in, in the right. in the in the Protestant world and denominations being formed based on disagreements with, with scripture and these kinds of things. And and you look around and go, well, wait a minute, what was the biblical way of deciding right. things? Well, it was striking a council and 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 
having those present who are who are apostles who have their authority given to Christ or their successors, right? It's, that's a deeply biblical way of doing Christianity. Oh, and there very it is much in the Catholic and it Church. attests as well. It attests as well, Keith, to the incarnate nature yeah, of Christianity. Yeah, See, yeah. Christianity is unique among all the world religions because we're not rooted in idea or ethical code. We're rooted in a person, a person that we claim is still alive. So that demands a dynamic relationship. It, it's not a one and done. Yeah. And, and what you see with councils, what they attest to is the vivacity, the, the livelihood of Jesus Christ. The fact that the spirit of Pentecost is still here. Pentecost never stopped. Pentecost continues to be. We are in Pentecost currently. The gift of tongues, the gift of the spirit, all those things continue to manifest through the bride of Jesus. That's also, by the way, not to go down a rabbit hole, but why the Blessed Virgin Mary is named by Luke at Pentecost. Because the spirit could not come into the world without our Blessed Mother's Immaculate Heart. See, she is the bride of the spirit. She's the first fruits of the salvation of Jesus. That's also the theology of the Immaculate Conception and then later on the Assumption. So when the spirit enters into the world, it's through the heart of Mary. That's how the spirit first, of course, incarnates the son in her womb as well. The way that the son is given to the world is by a mother. And that's why we also refer to the church in the feminine. Because the church is not a neutered institution at the center, at the epicenter of Mother Church is a feminine personality, and that's Mary and her faithfulness. So that birthing of the Spirit, which becomes the birthday of the church at Pentecost, continues to be dynamically maintained through the sacramental life of the church. And that's why, until Jesus Christ comes again, Mother Church will always find this adventure of Christianity ever new, because she's in this dynamic relation with the Lord. And it's quite beautiful. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, that's what I love about Catholicism more than anything else is that it's not humdrum it's not boring in the least it's every day you wake up you're discovering something new if you're really giving yourself to it and it's an amazing amazing gift and i believe that ecumenical councils attest to that fact <laughs> i could talk to you all day long father <laughs> <That's fantastic. laughs> likewise brother likewise. okay okay to avoid too many rabbit holes you talk about the idea and and we talked about this first back i know 100 episodes ago when we first talked about this idea of this this para council Right, right. And, and the idea that when people say Vatican II or think of Vatican II, they're not often referring to actually what Vatican II, you know, the, the documents that came out of Vatican II or what it needed right. to do. But this idea of this kind of the, the, the para-council. Can we unpack that for a little bit? What, what people think about when they, when they hear Vatican II, if they, if they have any recollection or any knowledge of it, what they are usually thinking of is, is not quite Vatican II, right? Right, right. Absolutely. This is one of the main themes of the book. And I, I hope that one of the fruits of this text and one of the fruits of the spirit will be a, a more common usage of that terminology, para-council, because I believe it's key to understanding what happened after the Second Vatican Council. Now, I did not coin that term, uh, so I have to, full disclosure, I stole it from a brilliant French Jesuit named Henri de Lubac, one of the great theologians of the 20th century and a great uh, patristic scholar. But one of the inspirations of this book was a meeting with an Irish Monsignor. I feel like we all know at least one old Irish Monsignor, right? <laughs> <laughs> Especially in North America, they evangelize so much of our continent. But uh, I had a conversation with him over lunch, I was actually a seminarian at the time assigned to his parish, and he regaled me with the stories of the Second Vatican Council because he was actually present at Vatican II. This led me to start reading the documents. It was actually over a 10-year study of reading documents, reading uh, journals, reading commentators. And as I studied the Second Vatican Council, I realized a disconnect between what I read, which was quite orthodox, profound, and beautiful, and what was being implemented or promoted as Vatican II at the grassroots level. So this began another uh, pivot in my study towards that 
distinction? Why, why did it happen that what I read did not match what I was seeing done in the quote-unquote spirit of Vatican II? Eventually, I discovered an essay by, by Henri de Lubac in his Appendix C of his little book called A Brief Catechesis on Nature and Grace. And in that appendix, he has a section titled The Council and the Paracouncil. And this is written within 10 years of the closing session of Vatican II. So he's already recognizing within a decade that there is a group mainly of theologians who did not believe Vatican II was radical enough. They were actually quite disappointed in Vatican II. They considered it far too conservative. And so after the Second Vatican Council, you had these theologians propped up by the media. We can't forget that Vatican II was the most reported council ever in church history. And it was covered and influenced by two things. Number one, the media itself, but also number two, technology. Both these things which are heavily influenced by, at that time, the United States of America. So the United States, when they interpret anything, especially in the 60s and 70s, and now in our own political realm, they always do so through the notion of liberal and conservative, through the Democratic and Republican parties. And they even do that with the church. And that's maintained till this day, unfortunately. You have people who treat the Catholic church like you would American politics, as if there's liberal bishops and conservative bishops and at each other's throats. And it's like a political football match. Well, that's not the church at all. That's not the church at all. But yet, this is how you have the media reporting Vatican II, that behind the walls of the Vatican, Cardinal Bea, the liberal open-minded cardinals fighting Cardinal Tivani, the closed-minded, rigid, traditional cardinal. That you know, They're at each other's throats. You hear that, that famous story of them unplugging Cardinal Tivani's microphone in the middle of his speech and everyone applauding. And So this kind of stuff that the New York Times and all these different newspapers are reporting on, that combined with the theologians who, after Vatican II, deputized themselves as the authentic interpreters of the council and go around to universities, to seminaries, uh, disseminating their own personal ideologies under the guise of Vatican II instead of what Vatican II actually taught. All those together are what led to uh, what Henri de Lubac defines as the paracouncil or this counter-narrative, this false narrative about Vatican II that doesn't really capture the heart of the council itself. Now, to give an illustration of that, I'll say, look at something like the sacred liturgy, which ironically is the most debated thing nowadays, although it was the first document voted through by the council because they said, oh, everyone can agree on the liturgy. Here, let's just vote on that one and move (laughs) on. It's like little did they know. But anyways, uh, if you look at the claims the Vatican II got rid of Latin in the mass, which is made by both paraconciliarists, so those who are influenced by the false narrative, uh, what is typically called the liberal narrative. But again, that's a, that's not a good terminology. It's a paraconciliar narrative. And you also hear that from the traditionalist side, that Vatican II got rid of Latin and got rid of tradition. Where? Where does it say that? Where does it say that in the document? Nowhere. Matter of fact, you read paragraphs 50 through 60, Vatican II is quite clear in Sacrosanctum Concilium that Latin must be retained. Not that it would be nice. It says it must be retained in the Latin rite. So much so that after the council, St. Paul VI published a book called Hubilate Deo, which was gifted to every single superior in the world. This was a text, a collection of Latin prayers, Latin chants that every Catholic was mandated to know so they could participate in the sacred liturgy. What happened to that book? Where is it? It disappeared off the face of the earth. Most of us don't even know about it. And so we point a finger at St. Paul VI saying that he was liberal and saying that he, you know, throttled tradition and what have you. No, he absolutely not. He was a very rooted Catholic evangelist who knew clear well the importance of the traditional language of the church and promoted it avidly. But it was those paraconciliar kind of thinkers that did not 
devote themselves to implementing the vision of Vatican II because they themselves were either disappointed or they themselves had already been influenced by the paraconciliar narrative. And that's what led to the breakdown. So now you have people pointing towards something and criticizing the council when it was not ever promoted by the council at all. And that's really what's happening nowadays, especially from the traditionalist critique, is that the majority of people who hate Vatican II do not hate Vatican II. They hate what they think Vatican II is. And those are two very different things. What Vatican II actually taught and what you think it taught because you listen to a YouTube commentator, those are very different realities. And so what we have to do is interact with the primary source before hearing from a secondary source. I used to be a middle school teacher. And one of the first things that I showed my kids was how to do primary research. If I ask you to write an essay on George Washington, don't go read a Wikipedia article. You have to go and you have to study the text of George Washington himself, read his inaugural address for his presidency, read his journals, read his letters. And then after you come to your own conclusions from a primary access to the text, then you can enter into a dialogue with secondary research sources because now you have a strong foundation you know what the primary resource is actually saying that did not happen after vatican ii very few laypersons actually have ever read these documents which is a tragedy and that's why they can be taken advantage of or they can be told this is what vatican ii says by either paraconciliarists who say vatican ii was year zero in the in the life of the church and it did x y and z and this is in the spirit of vatican ii and as one bishop told me so uh so wisely he said if anybody comes up to you and says they're doing something in the spirit of vatican ii they're probably not. <laughs> They're probably not. And he was actually a theologian, an expert of the Second Vatican Council, studied in Rome. But also on the traditionalist side, when they come and say, you know, Vatican II did X, Y, and Z, well, that's not true either. So what we need to do is to return to these texts, and that's one of the main points of my book, to give the origins of the text, the goodness that the text have, and to encourage the reader to go and study them for themselves. Yeah, and the funny thing with that is that's what I always encourage in this show in terms of Catholicism in general, for those who are looking right. into the church, right? And I, and I say this, in, I think, in almost every introduction to the show when I, when I began the podcast, is that my journey into the Catholic faith began with looking into the primary sources. Right? I had these yeah. notions of what the Catholic Church was and what the Catholics believed based on some pretty bad information, it turns out, and, and misunderstandings. And it was looking into the church and looking at the actual documents, what actual Catholic theologians said and what the documents of the, of the popes and the catechism said, that I realized that, that I was totally wrong about the Catholic church right. in general, right? It's the same exercise that you're describing yes. here, just digging into Vatican II at those primary sources versus right. getting your information from, from all kinds of other places, right? And if we do, I think we'd be happily surprised at how beautiful, orthodox, yeah. and holistic Vatican II is. For those who would label themselves progressive, well, I have good news for you. The Second Vatican Council did have a giornamento, as St. John the Twenty-Third said, meaning it had this thrust towards an evangelical zeal. But to those who would label themselves traditionalist, I have good news for you too. It has that evangelical thrust and zeal in a way that's much more traditional and beautiful than you might think. And this is, again, why I really encourage everyone to surrender themselves with triggers, of buzzwords, of labels, of political influences or categories, and just to approach these documents with freedom and with holy obedience. Now, now this is also what's yeah. key. I do not have magisterial weight and authority. An ecumenical council does. Now, I could hate Vatican II all I want, or I could disagree with Vatican II all I want, but that doesn't mean anything because I don't have the authority to determine what is an ecumenical council and what is not. Now, if a group of bishops 20 years from now want to call another ecumenical council to renounce Vatican II, well, that's their initiative and they can do so. They have that authority, but I do not 
a priest does not, one single bishop does not, no layperson has that authority either. So the fact of the matter is this was an ecumenical council summoned by the Holy Spirit, which demands obedience and trusting confidence. And so we are also obligated as Christians we are, it is our, we are duty bound, if you will, to study and to read these documents and to know what the church is teaching. This is the highest form of magisterial teaching that is possible in Christianity. There is no higher form. It's ecumenical councils and sacred scripture. These are the two main forms of divine revelation in the world. These are the two ways that tradition and scripture manifest themselves. So we're also duty bound to understand these documents. And I promise that if we do so with a humble spirit, it's amazing what happens for our spirituality. It did for me. I was totally transformed by this, you know. But one of the other things that I really see, Keith, that's that's sad for me is there there seems to be a tension of Catholics at each other's throats. That's that's very disheartening, or at the throat of the hierarchy. And that's never been the model of Christianity. It's never been the model of Catholicism. That's not part of the Catholic ethos. If if we really want to be Catholic in our core, we have to have the freedom to dialogue. This is what Pope Francis calls the art of accompaniment. And he means a lot more than just meeting people where they're at. The theology of that is actually quite deep. We're, we're called to constantly enter into one another's hearts, one another's minds with a freedom and a peace and an interest, not in being right, not in being right, but living in the truth. Again, those are different. So I'm not here to prove my point. I'm here to follow Christ. And that may mean I have to die to my opinion or my own ideology. But what's most important is discovering Jesus and affirming the love of the other, affirming the preciousness and the goodness of the other. And if we do that with authenticity, with a heart full of humility and love, then the church is able to authentically progress. Right now, we're handicapping ourselves. You know, we're hamstringing uh, the church in many ways because we're, we're so caught up in these different kinds of tensions and arguments that are mainly based off of ignorance of what Vatican II actually taught, that it's crippling our ability to move forward as the church and also our evangelical mission, which is the most important thing the church has to do is to love Jesus Christ in the sacred liturgy and to allow the graces of that liturgy to go out and evangelize the world. And we're not able to do that because we're caught up in these false narratives. So that's something else I think is very important for us in order to progress as the church. Yeah, and that's what I see so often from from listeners to this show is that feedback that, hey, look, I'm looking into the church. I see a crippled, broken church that's fighting over liturgy, right. that's fighting over this thing called Vatican II. What is it and why are they fighting over it and what's going on? Right? Right. That, that evangelical spirit, that Vatican II, as we even know, digging the documents, that Vatican II really emphasized in yes. such a such an important way and a, and a beautiful way that's fundamentally lost by fighting over Vatican yeah. II. <laughs> Right. Yes. <laughs> and by fighting over not Vatican II, meaning, yeah, yeah, again, right. the yes. Paracouncil's version of Vatican II. That's what I have found. So, again, there'll be arguments about Latin and the Mass. I'm like, that was not an argument at Vatican II. So why why is it an argument for us? So that's the that's the question I'm constantly asking is, where are the points of contention? And if they're not relevant to Vatican II then how did they become a point of contention? Where did that come from? So it had to come from a secondary source that either themselves are misinformed or have their own agenda to promote. So that's where we have to, again, return people, point people back to the text and to be authentic to that. So I'm right there with you, Keith. I think that's that's definitely an issue that we need to address. Always with the spirit of joy, you know, always with the spirit of freedom. We trust in the Lord, uh, but but with sincerity and devotion as well. Yeah, it's the cordial Catholic, so we're we're on good footing here. We're good yeah, footing. exactly, exactly. <laughs> I guess I get that. I guess the tension comes in in the fact that say, 
I have read the documents of Vatican too. I, I mm-hmm. think they're beautiful and wonderful, and I'm I'm with on the same page with you. To understand mm-hmm. what what the council said is is different than than what the the para council said, and and what you hear Vatican II said, right? Understanding it right. by reading it is, is very different. And so I, I I read it and I love it, and I think it's 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 wonderful what what the bishops and the Holy Spirit did in, in that council. But then I go to a parish, and I right. see I don't hear these Latin prayers. I don't see Gregorian right. chant in a place of pride. I don't see, I don't see uh, ever the, the priest, you know, facing away from the congregation. You know, I, I, we're singing very contemporary hymns with guitars right. and all these things that I know, I know wasn't, you know, nowhere in Vatican II does it say you must use guitars or, or, right. or you must, right. or you must, you must face, you must face uh, the, the people during the liturgy. Right. You know, a lot of these things that, that I know weren't in Vatican II, weren't in those right. documents, are happening in in our parishes, right? And I and I can sympathize with those who rally against Vatican II because they see right, all these things. Course. They're like, well, where? Why? This is all you know. Vatican II did all this stuff, and this is terrible, and we got to go back to to more of the things that are happening in the Latin Mass that are beautiful. Because I I think they're right in many cases. Yeah, but I know that. <laughs> I know they're wrong in saying that in blaming Vatican II because right. it wasn't in those documents. Right. There's that yeah. tension there though, right? Because the, yeah. there are parishes that look like the parish council wanted them to look, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. And that's something I think is going to be key also to healing and moving forward. There's developed, unfortunately, I think a hypercritical attitude towards traditionalism that's very unhealthy and unpastoral. In the end, most people become traditionalist or, or go towards the tradition because they've been hurt and have legitimate concerns. And I think that we're going to have to approach traditionalism with a pastoral heart to listen and understand where the ache is, where the wound is. Something else that's going to be key to that is also realizing that there is not a war between the old mass and the new mass. I, I, I hate that kind of terminology. Again, very un-Catholic terminology old mass, new mass. That's an improper way to understand it. There are two valid missiles. In the Latin Rite, the Missal of St. John the 23rd, which is typically called the Extraordinary Form, and the Missal of St. Paul the Sixth, called the Ordinary Form. Granted, the Ordinary Form Missal is actually a lot more ancient in many ways than the Extraordinary Form Missal because it's rooted in ancient uh, uh, apostolic and patristic text. So the to levy against the Missal of St. Paul the Sixth, what is commonly called the Novus Ordo, that it's very contemporary traditional is totally incorrect. The issue is that most of the time the Missal of Paul the Sixth is not either celebrated properly yeah. um, or it hasn't been catechized in a proper way. It hasn't been taught. Again, that's all the fruit of the Paracouncil. So I most certainly agree with you. I think many people have been wounded or hurt by their local parochial experiences, specifically in regards to the sacred liturgy. But what that demands, however, is distinguish between those who have misimplemented the council and the council itself. So the issue, again, is not Vatican II. And a lot of times the accusation is against the ecumenical council, but rather the issue is those who either either ignorantly, which is my, my opinion, I don't think we have a bunch of you know, priests and lay people who are maliciously trying to usurp yeah, Vatican yeah. II. I don't think that at all. The majority of priests and lay persons have very good hearts. They're trying to, to preach the gospel, trying to do what's right. I just firmly believe they've been misinformed. Now we're 50 years from the event, and the paracouncil, as Joseph Ratzker said, by the way, these are not my words. This is coming from St. John Paul II. This is coming from Joseph Ratzker, Henri de Lubac, von Balthazar, um, Yves Congar, all these people who are present at Vatican II. They were very clear in saying that it was, it was unfathomable to them how quickly the message of Vatican II was degraded within a 10-20 year period. 
and how vehemently some of these theologians went to promote their own ideologies and to allow that to go through this, especially the seminary formation program, but also in the university and Catholic educational systems. And we've had that now for almost five decades in many ways. And so we can't be upset with those who are misimplementing Vatican II if that's how they were taught or if they were taught in the spirit of Vatican II without actually studying the documents firsthand or what have you. So it's also going to demand a, a humble patience with our brothers and sisters too. And there's a section of my book I think is very key to that called Suffering with the Church or Learning How to Deal with Disappointment in the Church. We've lost that art. The church is a bride who is on the way, as Vatican II says in Lumen Gentium. It's a pilgrim church. And along the way of pilgrimage, guess what happens? You trip, you fall, you, you scrape your knee, you get bloodied and bruised. We've seen that with the horrific abuse scandals, for example. There are times when the church gets a black eye. Doesn't mean that she stops being the bride of Jesus. <laughs> Doesn't mean that Christ stops loving her. On the contrary, St. Paul says, I make up on my body what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the church. And we're called to do the same. We have to be patient and to suffer with Mother Church as she continues her journey throughout history. And we have to do that now as we go through the implementation of Vatican II. I also want to highlight that it is not uncommon for a council to go through some growing pains within the first several decades of its implementation. We cannot pretend like after the Council of Trent, everything was hunky-dory. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. It took a good 50 to 70 years for the Council of Trent to take fruition within the universal church. It, there were a lot of liturgical abuses taking place. There were a lot of areas where, again, Protestantism had already gone through and influenced the Catholic worldview and Catholic dynamic. It took many decades for the church to get on track with the Council of Trent. The same is true for all the councils that preceded before it. For that reason, St. Vincent Laurent, the great church father, penned his commentary on the Council of Ephesus after its promulgation, pointing out to people, hey, there's a lot of theologians going out there misimplementing the teachings of the Council of Ephesus or misrepresenting the Council of Ephesus. And that was back centuries ago. So this is not something new when it comes to an ecumenical council. It takes time to go through it. So we can't toss out the baby with the bathwater. Rather, we have, we have to have the prudence, the wisdom, the patience, the humility, the insight to say, okay, what's really at issue here? Draw distinctions, as St. Thomas Aquinas will teach us, and in drawing those distinctions, to love the good, to realize that sometimes the weed grows up with the wheat, as Christ says in his wonderful parable. And when the time comes, the weed's going to be severed and cut away and the wheat will remain. But the weed and the wheat do grow together. And we have to be willing to suffer that with the Lord, trusting that the Holy Spirit's grace will always be guiding the church. So that's the freedom with which I approach the dialogue on Vatican II, as well as the, criti the criticism uh, that comes from either paraconciliarism or traditionalism. And I think, you know, you're on the right show, Father, for this this humble approach to things. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I think listeners will, will appreciate that. And that's so important. I mean, I can think of when I was becoming Catholic, I, I went to the closest parish to my house, not realizing that it really was a parish that was really steeped in this in this paracouncil thinking, this is this spirit <laughs> of Vatican II, right? That right. not what it actually taught, but what it, it seemed to have, have taught. And <laughs> what we'd call maybe a liberal parish is the word we would use at the time. I think we've, we can move past, and, and you're coining some, some, I think, better ways of talking about that for, yes. for sure, right? But I got there and and here was a wonderful priest who's who's now passed on, who'd been there for like 35 years as the pastor of this parish, right? So somebody who was really trained during the time of Vatican II 
mm-hmm. you know, afterwards when when that whole para council was was raging through education and and through the media yeah. and staffed by by some sisters who were equally of the same kind of age, same kind of vintage, right. who. And I remember going to my my first adoration and and coming in uh, and the Blessed Sacrament is there on, on the altar and I and I kneeled I kneeled down on, on on both knees as I knew I was supposed to do from watching RCA videos on YouTube and learning about the Catholic faith <laughs> yeah. before becoming Catholic. And here I was, this aspiring Catholic, coming into my first experience of this with the, the team that was that was doing the RCA program for for new for adult converts. And the, and the sister, sister says to me, oh, no, no, we don't do that anymore. We used to do that. Mm. We don't do that anymore. That's, that's an old way of doing that. And I right. thought, and I bit my tongue even back then, Father, because I thought, I, I'm pretty sure we know we still do this. That didn't change. Yeah. <laughs> but it was this, you right. know, and you said before that this innocence, right? It's not as if yes. this lovely sister and this pastor were intentionally trying to water down the faith or, or to mislead right. these new aspiring Catholics. They... They came from a system that really was was steeped in this paracouncil thinking and right. and really not what the Vatican II intended because nowhere in Vatican II are are people being told to, to water down the liturgy or, right. or we shouldn't give the of our bless our, our the our Lord in in the sacrament uh, less of you know less of our worship or something yeah but it was in but that's how it was interpreted right and and these people in these parishes that are well meaning I think most of the time are are. are are, are leading people in that direction. I don't think, you know, in, yes. innocent as that is, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's where, again, we have to have the patience because I, I think of some of my brother priests who are much older than myself who have been priests, you know, for 40, 50, 60 years, especially during this turbulent paraconciliar time. And we most certainly are light years away from each other in regards to theological milieu, liturgical understanding, the understanding of Vatican II itself. But what you can respect is their faithfulness for 40 years, yeah. for 50 years, you know, and, and there's something beautiful in that that I very much admire. You're absolutely correct, however, that there was this either intentional or, again, I believe, in my opinion, many times ignorant uh, misinterpretation of Vatican II to also get rid of these pious practices. I'll give another example from my own priesthood that's interesting, but um, when I was newly ordained priest, one of the things I love to do, and I still do it, is use the colors, the symbolism, you know, the incense, what have you, to really teach the congregation, especially at weddings and funerals, because you have a lot of either uh, unaffiliated or uncatechized Catholics or, or even atheists or people of other religions there. So these signs and symbols are very important. Well, when I preside funerals, I make use of all the liturgical colors, including black and violet. Now, one time I wore my black vestment out for a funeral because it was a very tragic funeral. It was with a young person and the family was distraught. And so it was a very appropriate, in my opinion, appropriate catechetical and liturgical color to use. Well, there was a, an old uh, religious sister there who was from the 1960s, 70s time period, and she lost it when she saw me wearing black. <laughs> oh, no. And she, she came up to me after mass, stormed to the sacristy, and she said, you're not allowed to wear black anymore. That's so pre-Vatican II, you know. Duh. And I was like, Really? I was like, and I pulled out the funeral ritual, the post-Vatican II funeral ritual, and I showed her the documentation where it said the appropriate colors for a funeral are white, violet, or black. And it says it right there in the post-conciliar Vatican II instruction for funerals. And she was shell-shocked. She's like, I, I, I could have swore they got rid of that old stuff. And I'm like, no, no, they, they didn't. It's right here. Vatican II never got rid of any of those things. So you see there, again, that yeah. visceral reaction that's coming from a lack of knowledge or understanding of what Vatican II actually taught. And I wasn't arrogant. I wasn't mean to her, but I showed her. I'm like, I just so you know, I'm not like against Vatican II here. <laughs> I believe in Vatican II. I just want to show you directly in the documents where it's very clear that this is an acceptable color. And again, 
the bishops can gather and summon another to counsel to change that. And I would be obedient to it, but I'm just being obedient to what the Holy spirit gave us. I, I, I can't do more than that. I can't do less than that. So I can't be um, criticized for doing what the church <laughs> says to do. And I think a lot of people naturally where the nub of the issue is they really um, they're upset that the church doesn't do what they want. Yeah. And because of that, they have this visceral reaction to either the Vatican II and the not being radical enough or Vatican II in their mind being too radical. Um, and so we have to go back and understand what was actually being taught. But I, so I've had many similar experiences uh, as well, especially in the realm of liturgy and spirituality. <laughs> yeah. Well, liturgy is one of the, the most forward facing things in this, right? And that's what often people are talking about when they talk about Vatican II is the liturgical changes because they were so dramatic and so big right. and, and so right there. Your book covers a lot more than that though, too. There are other aspects of Vatican II we can't dig into all of them here. Right. Uh, pick up the book because it's fantastic. <laughs> you want to know, know more. But but things like the the church, like what the, the church is and how the church deals with yes. other other parts of the world, other religions, other Christian communities. Because again, one of the things that came out of, of Vatican II, uh, this again, right, is one of those heartbreaking things that I, I know people who have encountered this from from even even priests today who they've gone to and spoken to is that the idea that well you don't have to become Catholic you're okay if you're if you're Christian and probably okay if you're a different religion right. too it doesn't really matter and this is one of those things again that Vatican II didn't teach didn't doesn't say the Catholic Church is irrelevant but it's often right. often kind of interpreted that way right and, and and even still today right it's it's happening we're all I'll hear from people who who have encountered this this spirit of Vatican II still still haunting parishes around. Right around the world, right, right with, with information like this. So, so can we dig in a little bit here? Like, what is the Vatican? Sure. What, did, what did Vatican do really say about what the church is? Yeah, thank God for doing that. So it's funny because <laughs> a lot of times when I'm interviewed about this particular topic, the liturgy will take precedent because most people are affected or associate the the rampage of Vatican II, if you will, with the liturgy. Yeah, you know, yeah. so thank you for pivoting because this is a point that I believe is missed because of the liturgical wars, so to speak, Vatican II, theologically speaking, specifically in the realm of what we call ecclesiology or the study of the church and Mariology, the study of the Blessed Virgin Mary, is one of the most rich and beautiful councils in church history. And I, I know that's a bold claim, but I, I make it. I make it <laughs> because what you're seeing is in Vatican II, and this is a point that I alluded to earlier in the podcast, Vatican II just didn't come out of thin air. It wasn't like a bunch of bishops got together and said, well, let's just make a council to destroy everything beforehand and you know restart the Catholic Church. <laughs> Vatican II was already two centuries in the making before it was officially promulgated in 1959 by St. John the Twenty-Third. Those two centuries, there was a new development in theology coming about that we call in French the Ressourcement. And you being Canadian, you know, you probably say it much better than me. Oui, I hope my pronunciation yeah. was okay. That's not bad. But... <laughs> <laughs> but the resourcement movement in English means resourcement took place because there was a new field of study that was birthed in that time period in the in 1800s, which is the field of archaeology. And thanks to archaeology, especially from the French, the Germans, the Americans, the British, there are discoveries being made all around the world 
in regards to patristic apostolic text and teaching. So now we have tens of thousands of pages of documentation that tell us how the first Christians worshipped, how the first Christians prayed, how the first Christians understood the church. The Didache, which is one of the oldest texts outside of the, the, New, the New Testament, uh, it's written in 90 AD, around the same time period as the, as the Gospel of St. John, but was only discovered in the 1800s. So we didn't have any physical copy of the Didache. We had heard it alluded to under a document written by St. Eusebius of Caesarea in his church commentaries, but never before had we actually found a documentation of it. Well, now we did in the 19th century. So discoveries such as these, of course, the most popular being the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 20th century, discoveries such as these gave birth to a whole new breadth of theological endeavor with theologians such as Johann Anna Moller, in the 1800s, in the famous German school of Tübingen, of which Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI is an alumni. Then you have that picked up by John Henry Cardinal Newman, the great ecclesiologist of that time period, who writes his famous church and development. And finally, that spearheaded or really crystallized in the theology of Father Matthias Sheban and his Mariology. So his incorporation of the ancient commentaries on the Blessed Virgin Mary, again, Honoring the Blessed Mother is from the very beginning of Christianity. That's why Luke includes honor of her in his gospel. That's the first apostolic attestation. He didn't have to name her. He didn't have to mention anything about her. But Luke goes to great lengths in both his gospel and the Acts of the Apostles to highlight our Blessed Mother and her role. John does the same thing, and we know he's the great theologian of Christianity. So Mary's role is essential in the life of the church. It's non-negotiable, and the ancient church fathers recognized that, specifically Germanus of Constantinople, Andrew of Crete, and John Damascene. Well, we discovered ancient homilies by these apostolic and patristic bishops commenting on the theology of Mary and her relation with the church. Why am I giving all this background? Those 200 years or so of theological development regarding the church and Mary, the laity and the church, the hierarchy in the church, the role of bishops, the role of priests, the role of the liturgy, the church's existence, all those things finally come to the fore in the Second Vatican Council's document, Lumen Gentium, which is the, the hinge document, if you will, of Vatican II. It really is a document that, that describes in such a magnificent and soaring way the essential nature of the church as the bride of Christ, as a pilgrim people, as the mystical body of the Lord, as the universal call to holiness. All these titles that in some ways have become mainstream nowadays are inspired by the Second Vatican Council's reflections on the apostolic and patristic theological notions from the early church. So uh, that document is, in my opinion, the most beautiful of the four major constitutions. Gaudium Espes is also quite magnificent. But you see in Lumen Gentium this understanding of the church now in relation to the laity uh, in a more nuanced way. We now know through the apostolic and patristic writings that the laity had a very important role in the early church, uh, not a clerical role. So there is a distinction between the clergy and the laity. That's one of the things the paracouncil tried to get rid of. So you did hear this paraconciliar narrative that like, oh, Vatican II wanted to have less clericalism. So it degraded, you know, we're all priests in the end. And that's where you have people like Edward Skilabix saying that everybody can consecrate the Eucharist. You know, it's like, no, 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 only a priest can consecrate the Eucharist, not everybody. Uh, but at the same time, Vatican II did emphasize the universal, the common priesthood that we all receive at baptism. And that's a priesthood not so much over the sacramental ministry, but that's a priesthood over our own sanctification. We are the priest of our soul. We're the ones that the Lord has has consecrated through baptism to sanctify ourselves and sanctify the world through whatever our vocation is. 
that theology is key to the Second Vatican Council's teaching and, again, is very much lost because of the petty and superficial dialogues that we sometimes find ourselves getting into. And I do encourage people to study that aspect of the church. The final point, point I'll make about Lumen Gentium that's, that's quite amazing. There was a huge debate at Vatican II, not often spoken about. It was not over the liturgy. It was not over, you know, the most, the most of the hot topics that we have nowadays. It was actually over the Blessed Virgin Mary and how to honor her in Vatican II. A lot of bishops thought that she should have her own constitution, that she deserved her own constitution. But then you had a group of Ressourcement influenced bishops who saw that as contradictory to the ecclesial, uh, patristic, and apostolic mindset of Mary. See, if you read the ancient understanding of Mary in the church, Mary is not a member of the church. Mary is the church in person and as person. She is the incarnate instantiation of the church. Mary is where the love of Christ is first birthed, is first viewed into the world. And that's why St. Augustine will say very boldly in his commentaries, we all become Theotokos through our Blessed Mother, meaning we all become God-bearer through the Blessed Virgin Mary. St. Augustine says that, that Our Lady was the first God-bearer but now through her fiat, through her yes to the son and the birthing of the son into the world and the institution by the son of the Holy Eucharist, we all now become Marian, which is the whole point of now Christianity, to become more like Mary, which is to say a more perfect disciple of Jesus Christ, who's totally and radically open to his salvation and his mission for us in our lives. So the council now decides, instead of giving Mary her own document, to make her part of the, church, the church's document on the essence and existence of the church. And so she is now part of chapter eight, Lumen Gentium, which in my opinion is a brilliant, brilliant theological development in church history to, to essentially tie the existence of marriage, to the existence of Christianity in the church. It really is magnificent. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want you to stop talking, Father. This is, <laughs> what else can you say? No, this is, this is great. I, there, there's so much in there. And I think, I mean, it, it really goes to show that I think the misunderstanding that so many people have of what Vatican II was and, and, and said in its roots, because here you've unpacked so succinctly, I think, the importance of, of the fact that this was a movement looking back at these sources that that the church had uncovered, the history had uncovered for us, yes. and and not and and not trying to quote unquote modernize the church or move mm -hmm. into the move into the you know in, it was the sixties and seventies a very turbulent time in society in right. general. It it wasn't intended to to modernize or liberalize Catholicism or, or open up the, the the floodgates to to let everyone be 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 happy and peaceful and everyone is saved and we're all good and the church right is just, Woodstock right, you know right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not this wasn't what the 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 theologians the bishops were intending right they were looking back at the sources right and trying to align the church more fully with with its historic identity right which I think is yes. always a really important thing to do. It's really the opposite, ironically enough, of, of what some of what some narratives try to claim Vatican II oh, was, yeah. right? This, this oh, modernizing yeah. force. Yeah, that, that's very typical also of anything that's inspired by the enemy, too. Yeah. So the enemy is very good at twisting a narrative or, or making the opposite. He always wants to mock what's true. He always wants to mock the truth. So the enemy, of course, wants to to dismantle and to degrade the dignity of Vatican II. He hates it when the bride of Christ has something beautiful. And so the enemy is always at work in this, trying to sow seeds of doubt and division. And he most certainly has accomplished that yeah. in a major way in the past 60 years. Now that we have huge swaths of people, either who are completely ignorant about the Second Vatican Council and his teachings, and ignorance is bliss in anything that's diabolical. And then you have those who are openly critical 
of an ecumenical council of the Catholic Church convened by the Holy Spirit. And then those, of course, who are usurping the council are using it for their own purposes and promoting their own ideologies. So those are three major currents right now, paraconciliar currents within the church that need to be addressed named, and again, always with a spirit of joy, not with a spirit of judgmentalism or hatred or criticism, but with a spirit of joy and honesty spoken about and opened up to the will of God. So that's, again, one of the main themes of this book. And I I agree. I agree that we need to appreciate the origins of this council and the fact that it is absolutely not trying to smack up against tradition. On the contrary, what you're seeing is a revival in the field of theology, and I believe it's epitomized by persons like Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, who is a doctor of the church. Even Pope Francis mentioned that in one of the uh, commentaries that he wrote uh, in a preface to Pope Benedict's book on the priesthood that was recently published, I believe, last year. Pope Francis, I mean, this man's going to be numbered among Leo the Great as one of the great theologians in church history. But Joseph Ratzinger is entirely informed by the Ressourcement Communio movement of theology. I mean, he is steeply rooted in the apostolic patristic notion of the church. And that's why his theology speaks to the hearts of so many people. And you see in a person like Joseph Ratzinger, the true spirit of Vatican II, the true theological vision of the council, someone who is absolutely rooted and sourced and in love with the tradition, while at the same time on fire to bring this tradition to a secularized and materialized world. We have to have these two things together. That's what it means to be Catholic. The word Catholic doesn't mean universal only. In its most original form in Greek, katholos, means according to the whole. What Catholicism literally means is to embrace everything, to embrace all things. It's the only paradigm, the only worldview that can embrace all things and bring them now, integrate them into the sacred heart, integrate them into the logos, the logos of Christ made flesh. That is the mission of Catholicism. I think that's what you see in Vatican II is that it now takes a new approach to the world, which I call my book the mystagogical approach, that word mystagogy coming from uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, coming from this ancient time period in the church when you would have after the initiation of Christians, they would spend several weeks in catechesis. Vatican II revived, by the way, that patristic practice in the RCIA movement of which you are a product, Keith. You are a direct product of the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, thank God. And you see in this, the, the desire of Mother Church through the council to revivify and, and to bring about this unbelievable fire of the spirit that was alive in the apostolic church. Cardinal Shea, excuse me, Cardinal, <laughs> I just made him a Cardinal, excuse me, uh, Monsignor Shea, he'll probably laugh if he hears this, this podcast. <laughs> I believe he's the rector president of the University of Mary. And again, he would die if he heard that he called him Cardinal Shea. So maybe that's a prophecy, yeah, you know, for one day. We'll see. But um. Monsignor Shea just published a a wonderful book in which he talks about the church entering into a new apostolic age. And he's absolutely right. And Vatican II was on that same bent as well. We are in a new apostolic age, and that demands a new form of evangelization, not a new truth. Truth is unchangeable. It's objective. Vatican II says that over and over again. But the mode, the way in which truth is, is, is shared is always organic and incarnate. That is attested to, of course, primarily primarily by Jesus himself. See, the only way the Father speaks is through incarnation. So the Father cannot speak in abstraction. The Father must speak through words, must speak through incarnation. That's the whole logic of Jesus. That's why St. John calls Jesus the logic of the Father. And then later St. Paul in Greek will say, Theon. he is the icon of the Father. So Jesus is the Father's word to the world. Now we become the Father's word to the world as well through baptism. Whenever we're baptized, confirmed, and Eucharistized, what's happening now is that we too are becoming the Father's word. See, Keith, you are what the Father's spoken to the world. 
You've what you've, you are what the father's spoken to your wife, primarily that's your vocation to your children, but you're also what the father is speaking currently through your Catholic faith to Canada, speaking to anyone who's around you. It, that's why Pope Francis says so brilliantly and, and amazingly in his, uh, in his reflection on personal call to holiness, he says, you are the father's mission. <laughs> So whenever, whenever we're born, we don't have a mission. We are a mission. Yeah. We are what the father's response is to the world through his son, which is incarnating himself within us through Eucharist and sacrament tautology. Uh, and that's just, again, magnificent to contemplate that I am the mission of the father in the world. I am what the father's given the world through his son and through the grace of the church and baptism. Vatican II harps on that over and over and over again. And that's a part of theology, which is called divinization or theosis. That's a part of theology that's been entirely overlooked because of these critiques of Vatican II that I also think is going to be key to us understanding our evangelical role and mission in the world. Yeah, absolutely. That's so well said, Father. And leads to my, my last question, I think, really, really, sure. really well for you. And that is, what now? You you talked before about kind of mm. hum, this humble patience. We can't expect or, or you know, we can't just banish all these these priests who are doing poor liturgy out of the church or these theologians right, who are right. trying <laughs> who are trying to promote their agendas out of the church we can't just excommunicate them all uh you know P- pope benedict in his wisdom has mentioned this church becoming smaller though at some yes. like, you know really in a sense that that those those kind of movements will eventually be weeded out because they can't sustain themselves because it's not really what Vatican II spoke about, right? Those things right. I think will will diminish and and become extinct at some point just because that that fire will go out. It's it's not absolutely of, of God, right? So, what do we do though? I think now with, with this knowledge though, if there's somebody who's listening, going, okay, well, this is not Vatican II that I that I thought it was. What does that person do now to go forward in, in, in the real spirit of Vatican II and, and in charity yeah. and in, in, I think, submission to the church, as you mentioned before, which I think is, is so Absolutely. important, right? That, that docility to the, the teaching of the church. Great question. So again, the foundations is always humility and obedience to the church. Uh, we have to develop the grace of perseverance and realize the church moves in epochs, in centuries, not in decades, Jesus says it so beautifully in the gospel when he's like, you will plant, but another will reap. You, you will take what you did not plant. I know I'm living in a time that I will never see the full fruits of Vatican II in my lifetime. And that's okay. It, it took Trent almost a century to get there, but it's not about me seeing it. See, that's not the point. It, it's not about doing right now what I wish would be done. It's about working steadily and faithfully to ensure that the will of God is done, not in my time, but on his time. And I think that's going to be very, very important for all of us as we seek to reclaim Vatican II is to have that kind of trusting confidence and foresight as our own founding fathers did, for example, here in the United States of America, they fought and died for a country they would never see. They never see. And we have that with the martyrs. Think of the martyrs who went to Canada. They died for a country, for a people that they would never see. I know that I'm going to die for a priest that I will never see. For, for a young boy out there right now in the world who's called to the priesthood, who will see the full fruits of Vatican II. But you want to know why? It's going to be because I was faithful to the Lord. It's going to be because he's standing on my shoulders and your shoulders, on, those, on the millennial generation and on Gen Z. And so these two generations have been entrusted with this task and it's going to demand perseverance and knowledge. Now, practically, what can we do? Number one, read Vatican II, I beg of you. And I'm not trying to, you know, do selfless promotion here, but I really do think you should, you should read my book as well. Um, again, not selfless, shameless rather promotion. Um, I think that doing those two things would really help, would really, really help. But again, more than even more so than my book, 
to please read the text of Vatican II. <laughs> if you get nothing else in this podcast, go and read Vatican II, study, understand it, chew on it, pray with it. The second thing is, if I have any of my brother priests or religious listening, the Catholic Church is designed as a top-down organization, meaning the way that Christ established the church is to have shepherds and for those shepherds to tend for their flock. And that's why under chapter seven of my book, I have a whole section just on the priesthood and the priestly role. And I mentioned how it starts with the priest. Fulton J. Sheen says that very clearly in his commentaries on the priesthood. Um, it's going to start with priest understanding fully the teachings of Vatican II. Again, dying to ourselves and our own personal opinions or ideologies or ways that we think it should be done and really conforming our minds and hearts to the vision to be to become what Origen calls a via ecclesiasticus, a man of the church. It's, I already have that written in my will that whenever I die, I want that on my tombstone. Father Blake Britton, <laughs> via ecclesiasticus, man of the church. You know that if I can have that one title in my life, uh, that would be worth everything to me to, to die a son of the church, to die in the arms of my mother and my bride. So for my brother priest, let's be men of the church. For my brother and sister's religious priest, uh, please, let's be men and women of the church. Again, for the laity, education is going to be key. And also with that education, evangelization. So the best form of changing the church is to change ourselves. In the words of the famous Michael Jackson, I'm starting with the man in the mirror, right? <laughs> now, I'm sure no one could have expected that MJ would make his way into this conversation on Reclaiming Vatican II, <laughs> but he did, the king of pop. But, you know, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. Is it is it cliche? Yes. Is it true? Absolutely. Absolutely. The first place that we begin is personal conversion, personal conversion. And if we start embodying these ideals of the council, if we do so also in the spirit of joy, I am going to ask that you engage your brothers and sisters with patience and holiness. If you have a friend who loves praise and worships and on eagle's wings, don't bite their head off. You know, <laughs> Approach them with love and help them understand that they are Catholic seeking Christ. And if you have a friend who likes to wear a veil and kneel down and receive communion on the tongue, guess what? They're holy and they're looking for Jesus too. So we all have to be patient with one another and loving. We're all on a journey, as G.K. Cheston says so wonderfully. We're all on a multi-road journey that's leading to a single destination. So we have to walk with each other and be loving and compassionate and patient and not immediately to cast a judgment just because a young woman's wearing a veil receiving communion on the tongue and just because a young guy likes to listen to Matt Marr. Like the, both these persons deserve just as much respect and validation and both of them are just as much members of the church and children of God as anybody else. So as priests, as, as lay persons, as religious, we have to walk with that kind of patience. So that's the, again, that's the, the avenue that I could tell you. One more final practical thing that I'll give, and, and again, something I do have a whole section on in the book I don't think is appreciated, your personal prayer life, specifically in regards to the Liturgy of the Hours. Yeah. If we had more Catholics integrating the Liturgy of the Hours into their daily lives, especially families, which Vatican II explicitly asks for families to pray the Liturgy of the Hours in the home, that's radical. That's amazing. That's an amazing insight from Vatican II that's often overlooked. If we had families praying the Liturgy of the Hours every day, even if it was just one hour, Lauds, Vespers, Compline, as a family, that would change the whole culture of Catholicism. Because now what's happening is we're becoming liturgically rooted. Vatican II is very clear that if we want to do anything right as a Catholic Church, it must start with the liturgy. We don't have an option. The liturgy is why the church exists, to offer right worship to the Father through the Son by the grace of the Spirit. So if that's off kilter, 
pack up, go home. That is the reason why we're here. Thus, Vatican II says that the Holy Mass is the source and summit of the life of the church. It's the divine liturgy that is the church's life's blood. So we have to be tied to that. And the way that we're tied to that is through the liturgy of the hours and the sacrifice of the Mass. So if those two things also become central to our lives as laity, that will help in reclaiming Vatican II as well. So just to summarize again, personal education, personal holiness, tying and rooting ourselves, anchoring ourselves into the liturgical life of the church. If we do those three things faithfully for the next 25, 30 years, all this will pass and we'll find a very different church. That sounds very easy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. In the words of Thomas Aquinas, God is infinitely simple. (laughs) And he really is. We're the ones that make things complicated, (laughs) but God is very simple. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Father Blake, it's such a pleasure talking to you. It's been too long, 100 episodes too long. So write some more <laughs> books about something I can have you on the show about. Because sure. This you is can fantastic. have me on any time, Keith. Okay. I love talking to you. you know, And I love sharing with my, my wonderful Canadian friends. So <laughs> a, a, lot of, a lot of Canadians actually follow, thank God, my podcast with Brandon. And they are amazing, amazing people. I just don't know how Canadians are all so nice. <laughs> if you could share that spirit with some Americans, right. I think that'd be helpful. Right. I'll, ship, I'll ship them down, but it's really expensive to send things across the border. So I don't know how it'll do <laughs> Oh, goodness. Father yeah, Blake, so thank you. Yeah, truly a pleasure. Uh, the book is Reclaiming Vatican II. It's kind of floating behind you there for those watching on YouTube mm-hmm. in some kind of very interesting way. I, I don't know what kind of, <laughs> what, yeah, who's holding that up for you, but that's, that's amazing. Yes, I, yeah, I paid, you know, I paid a parishioner 10 bucks to stand there for the episode and just hold it up for me. Oh, Perks of being a parish yeah, priest. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. $10. That, that's about $100 Canadian. So that's pretty good. That's a pretty good wage. Uh, I'll put links to to that book uh, in in the show notes and your podcast. Where else can people go to, to find you? Tell us more about about because people want to know more. Where, where should they yeah, go? Yeah, absolutely. So the best thing is through Facebook or Instagram. Just Father Blake Britain, you know, or, or at Father Blake Britain. You can follow me on Instagram, and and I'm constantly updating things. And they're also providing a lot of spiritual enrichment in addition to my book. So obviously, Reclaiming Vatican Two is right now a soapbox that I'm on, and I think it's an important <laughs> one. Thank God, there's been a really positive response to that. So. For the next couple, you know, probably for the next year or so, that'd be a lot of what I'm doing and working with. But that being said, I publish a lot of different things. Thank God the Lord's very good and and provide a lot of different kinds of spiritual enrichment. My book of the month, which I give every month through my Facebook Live page, um, where I I suggest things for a Catholic library. And I give history of different patristic texts, the spiritual books, theological books. And I always share the link on how you could purchase those. I do Bible studies. I do retreats online. All these things, of course, absolutely free and accessible to anybody who wants them. So my point here is to spread the word as much as possible. Um, So everything I give, you know everything that that I provide for you don't have to register or anything like that um you just log in and the only thing I ask is that you like the page or the, and that you follow it and you'll be in um in the loop on all that stuff I look forward to seeing you guys there <laughs> that's fantastic yeah Father, thank you for being here once again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for your time. I want to say God bless you and, and your priesthood, your ministry to the church, because it's so valuable. This work you're doing is just so phenomenal, and I'm so glad to be just thank touched you. by it in some way. And and reminding you and others that you that this was the first podcast that really launched your <laughs> book career and this whole so so think of me when 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 they're calling you cardinal just think of the little oh guy who you knew when you first started out father <laughs> well you know i'm just trying to be a holy priest yeah. for now 
now, so let's take it slow. Okay, okay, but okay. uh but no, I I promise Keith, I will never forget that you were the first one. You had the foresight yeah. to see that reclaiming Vatican II was very much needed for the world. So <laughs> it all started here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the Holy Spirit. I mean one of the yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I think he had something to do with it. But you yeah. know, mostly Keith. You know? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Mike feeding heart can't take it. Thank you, Father. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank God bless, brother. Bye. Well, there you have it, friends. My return interview with Father Blake Britton. Always a pleasure to have him on the show. <laughs> so much fun we had. We talked for a long time before and after the show, actually, and really enjoyed each other's company very much. He's such a, a fun uh, someone person to talk to and really appreciate him and the relationship that we have on this show and him coming back on here again to talk about this and I, I love that I was able to to be there at the beginning to, to bring him to a wider audience with his thoughts on Vatican to a hundred episodes ago that's such a blessing to be able to do that and to, and to be doing this this podcast and this work so thank you for listening and for Father Blake for being on the show. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website for show notes and for my blog and, and those kinds of things. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Cordial Catholic, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and of course YouTube.com slash The Cordial Catholic to watch what you're hearing here every week. CordialCatholic at gmail.com is my email address. Get in touch, please. I love hearing from you guys, hearing who you are, where you're listening from, and why, oh, why you continue to listen. Your feedback is is phenomenal and i thank you in advance for reaching out to me thanks i love to hear from you guys it's great if you can leave a review and a rating on this show on apple podcast that would go a long way to helping to push the podcast out to new people please subscribe to our youtube channel as well that helps to, to build that and grow that as well and how about supporting the show if you like this work that would be incredible it's at patreon.com slash cordial catholic to support the show on a monthly basis or paypal.me slash cordial catholic for a one-time donation thanks in advance friends please pray for me know that i'm praying for you and i'll talk to you again next week thanks so much guys god bless This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.